This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind. I'm Emma Ryan, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha. For those of you new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events, and season two is all about investor interviews. In today's episode, we're revisiting our Speaker Series event from June of 2021 with Seth Levine, partner at Foundry Group and a co-founder of the firm. Seth talks about the catalyst for his latest book, The New Builders, the current and future state of entrepreneurship, and stories about the new builders making an impact in their local communities. I was surprised to learn that entrepreneurship has been on a continuous decline since 2008, and the pandemic certainly hasn't helped either. In this interview, Seth shares his take on the next generation of founders and argues for the future of American entrepreneurship, along with giving us advice on how to support them. With that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to everyone who has joined or is in the process of joining this, our 54th High Alpha Speaker Series, today featuring my friend and friend of High Alpha, Seth Levine. Before we kick off, I want to say thank you to a handful of folks, maybe most notably Silicon Valley Bank and Ice Miller for their continued, ongoing, and very generous support of High Alpha and the speaker series in particular. They've been kind of sponsors and partners of High Alpha since we launched six years ago and have been really steadfast in that support. And uh, it's pretty amazing. So, so thanks to, to both of those organizations. I would ask participants or, or remind them that all, your lines are muted. But we do want you asking questions, and I'll make sure to protect some time at the end of this chat to surface some Q&A. So if you would, any questions that come up during the course of our conversation, if you just drop them into the uh, Q&A, and if, and if you can't, it's, it's down there, you know, smash the subscribe button and then hit uh, the QA button and and. Uh, those will be sent to us directly. So that would be awesome. We are recording this interview, so you will be able to revisit it after the fact or share it if that's interesting to you. And then last but not least, feel free to tag us on social either during or after, and we're using the uh, hashtag HAIdeas. So that that would be the best way to to help us promote that. And and Seth just dropped just dropped a message into the chat saying the more questions the better. 
So that's good. So we'll, we'll, there'll be high expectations. I've already let Seth know this is a very high intellect, high horsepower crowd. So, uh, you know, don't make no, me a liar. No right? pressure, guys. Yeah, exactly. No pressure. All right, real quick intro on, on Seth, and then he's going to tell us a bit more about his story. But he has been working in venture and with startups and early stage businesses for the better part of two decades. He is a partner and co-founder at Boulder-based Foundry Group, who I'm sure uh, the vast majority, if not all of you, know and have heard of. And Foundry's just been an awesome partner to us at High Alpha and also a, a terrific partner to some of our studio companies as well. So just a, a fantastic group of of human beings. And Seth is an, an exemplar of that group, just a really smart, missionally minded, high integrity guy. And I know you're going to enjoy learning more about his story. Maybe most importantly, or, or most notable for this conversation, he's also the co-author of a new book, The New Builders, with his, with his co-author, Elizabeth McBride, who is not able to join us today. But Seth, I hope you'll give us a little background on Elizabeth as well, because I'm sure we'd, uh, the, the game would be interested in hearing, hearing more about her. But the book, as you'll learn more about in a moment, is really focused on telling the stories of new slash next generation of small business person and entrepreneur. And, and the book is really, in many ways, kind of a manifesto arguing for the new future of entrepreneurship and what we need to do as an industry and maybe more generally as a nation in order to help set uh, those founders and ultimately our society up for success. How was that, Seth? Sounds good. Okay, I love, I love it. it. Okay, good. <laughs> it's a great, so, that's uh, actually a great setup, Christian. I appreciate to it. To kick us off, I was sharing with Seth that we always, I always ask our guests to like go way, go, go way back and and, and spend a little time telling the story of how they got to where they are today. So with, with that, I'm going to hand the mic over to Seth and, and have him give us a bit of background on his Genesis story. Awesome. Sorry for the dogs barking in the background. I guess that's just part of Zoom these days. No problem. Yeah. So I'll do the quick version, but I want to touch on how Foundry got started because I think that's kind of an interesting story. But I, you know, I'm from Boston. I grew up in the Boston area. I went to college in the Midwest in St. Paul, Minnesota. I spent some time working in New York City after college, which was great, and and then moved to Denver, Colorado after a few years of working in New York. My my dad and actually both both of his parents were born here in in Colorado, and I'd always had an attraction to the mountains and had spent a lot of time you know rock climbing and mountaineering and things like that. And that was ninety six. I worked for a couple of companies, sort of datacom telecom companies, sort of through the bubble. Actually, one of the companies I worked with went public. I was kind of I split the CFO role at a relatively young and inexperienced age uh, with the, the head of accounting. And that was kind of a, those were heady times, including actually one of our investors was Enron, if, if, uh, those of you who oh recognize that name from back in the day. And actually I, I ended up sort of maybe stories for a different time, but actually negotiated a bunch of fiber lease deals directly with Jeff Skilling, you know, kind of across the table. <laughs> kind of fun, fun times. That is, that is amazing. I said, I told people, I love documentaries. One of my favorite is called The Smartest Guys in the Room. Absolutely. About, about the, the Enron stories. So anyone, any, any young people that want to go dig into the, to the history of that story, that's a good place to start. And by the way, Jeff Skilling was super smart, like really smart. I mean, he was maybe too smart for his own good or at least too maniacal for his own good. But I didn't really know Ken Lay. I'd only met him once, but uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, you, uh, that's, a, that's a good one for people to check out. So I, anyway, bubble burst, stuff happened at the business. I ended up deciding I wanted to leave. And I, I decided I, I wanted to try venture capital. I had a bunch of friends from New York that, that had gone into venture capital. And so I networked into a bunch of VCs in Colorado. It turns out there weren't very many of them. And one of, them, one of the guys I met was Brad Feld. And it turned out, I mean, you know, it was like three months to get on his calendar. He, I mean, he took the meeting as a favor to a mutual friend kind of thing. And he, we met for like 15 minutes. And, uh, and he said, you know, hey, well, I think we're going to hire an associate if you're interested in that. Like, you know, you should, you should apply. And so I went through this application process to become a, an associate at, was at that, what was then called SoftBank Venture Capital. The funny thing about that story was I got to the end. I did a bunch. I was one of two finalists. I did a bunch of interviews with I did another one with Brad, a couple of couple with Brad, and then a bunch of other people. Brad wanted to hire the other guy, and the team wanted to hire me. And so he deferred to the rest of the team. And that's how I got my job at SoftBank Venture Capital. The beauty, <laughs> the beauty of partnerships. Yeah, right. It's well, and actually I say that story because I think it speaks to Brad, right? I mean, I think a lot of other people would have just said, Hey, I'm gonna go with my, the guy that I want. And Brad said, hey, we had a team of eight people doing these interviews for a reason, and it was seven to one. So I'm going to go with what the team wants, right? Which is great. So I joined as an associate. It was going to be a two-year role. And you know, it was an interesting kind of step back. I had been running. I ran a pretty big business at the, the last company I was working with. And I had probably 250 people in my organization. I had about a $50, $55 million P&L that I was, I was running. And then I, I went to be an associate at Mobius and I was, you know, back doing my own sort sorry, at SoftBank at the time, uh, doing my own spreadsheets and things like that. Two years turned into three, three years turned into four. I got promoted to this like super junior partner role at what had then changed, they had changed their name to Mobius Venture Capital. And at some point they were going to go raise another fund, like Mobius 7, I think they were calling it. And at some point I went and, and sat down with Brad and I just said, hey, I love Mobius. I love working with you, but I'm not going to stay to be like a super junior partner in the next fund. I'm not quitting like today, but I just wanted to give you the heads up that I, it's just not, you know, I'm going to get to do one or two of my own deals. It's just, you know, it's not going to work. And he said to me, you know what? I don't think we're going to be able to raise this fund as, as Mobius. And I'm kind of thinking about going off and doing my own thing. I'd love to do it with you. And that's what kind of kicked off Foundry is this, this, this conversation. We Eventually, we invited our other uh, co-founders, Ryan and Jason, who were working with Mobius in Palo Alto to move to Colorado. They moved in 2006, the summer of 2006. By the beginning of 2007, we kicked off our fundraising. And back then, you had to like write a PPM and you know all this sort of legal stuff very different. There were no like emerging managers that didn't really, that, that concept didn't exist back then. Union Square had raised a fund. True, I think, had an early small fund that was raised. I mean, but it was, it was, there weren't a lot, there weren't, there weren't, it, the landscape looked very different. Yep. And, and by May of that year, it was pretty clear we were not going to be able to raise our fund. It just, it was very tough sledding. It was, you know, people didn't really Sort of understand the story. We were relatively young. Brad was had experience, but the rest of us were less experienced. And uh, and actually, I remember going home at one point and saying to my wife, like, because we kind of we, you know, I had done, I'd made a little bit of money, but the bubble had come and then gone. I mean, I hadn't had a chance to like cash out of anything. And yeah. so I, you know, we we weren't going to like lose our house, but we basically put all of it was really expensive to start a venture firm back then because of the I mean the legal costs alone were like three hundred thousand dollars. And we had like put up our life savings to do it. 
And I remember going home one day and saying, hey, I think Christian knows my wife because we, we all traveled together about two years ago now. But and I'm, I went home and said, hey, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Like, I think I think kind of lost the, <laughs> lost the savings and I got to worse. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do now. I've been a, a VC for like six years at that point and not particularly qualified to do anything else. But but fortunately for us, we had a couple yeses over the summer and then a big yes, which was the U Tim coach for University of Texas said yes. And then all of a sudden everyone else decided they want to do it. And that was our what that was what became the 2007 fund for Foundry. We we raised a bunch of other funds. We now manage, I mean, from we started by trying to raise $175 million, thinking like, we'll do that three times. And then that's probably the history of the firm. You know, fast forward whatever it's been now, 13 years. And we are three over $3 billion under management now. And, you know, we invest in funds, we invest in companies, we've had a bunch of companies go public, we've had a bunch, obviously a bunch of great sales. And it's been a, it's been a very unexpected ride. But that that's the well, history. And, and, I hope I went, I hope I did you, it. Justin. Uh, you know, you did and, and you all deserve it. Again, just Seth and his partners are very smart and very talented, but they're also really deserving of success. They're just good people. They're kind of people first. And it's fun to see that rewarded with the continued success and, you know, of, of the fund. And, and as you pull more new, bright, amazing people into your orbit and, and help companies like High Alpha and, and, and the companies that we support by association, what you're, what you're helping build across the country, ultimately across the world is, is pretty, pretty remarkable. So maybe let's transition and talk, let's spend a little bit more time talking venture and then we'll, we'll transition. I think that'll be a nice transition into kind of the, the meat of the book. So you've been in and around the industry now, uh, kind of going on two decades. How would you describe or maybe unpack some of the more fundamental shifts that you've seen kind of unfold in the venture capital industry since since the days you got started? Yeah, what a great question, Christian. I, and I love talking about it. It's really, it's it's just interesting. There have been kind of three waves in my world, in my, you know, my 20 year history now in venture. I'm just going to hit 20 years actually in like a month or two. <laughs> the first wave was this sort of wave of openness, right? There was, when I joined venture, it was very much black box, you know, kind of hide the ball. There was this idea that kind of the more that that you knew as a venture capitalist and the less you shared, the more advantageous it was for you. Yeah. Um, and it was people like Brad and Fred Wilson who started blogging and kind of talking about it. And eventually Brad and then my partner, Jason, wrote Venture Deals. And, and they sort of helped kind of, I hope maybe, uh, you know, Ryan and my, myself as well, a little bit help push the narrative of, openness actually is is to everyone's benefit and and this idea that the more informed entrepreneurs were the sort of better off we all were as an industry and that was kind of wave 1 which was really interesting wave 2 was was happening somewhat simultaneously which is you know when i joined venture and this is i think why foundry had so much trouble raising money the 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 adage was essentially if you're not in one of the top like five or six firms sequoia kleiner perkins nea etc the it did like you weren't meaning it, it as an investor then there was no reason to be in the asset class this idea that there would be sort of other smaller venture firms what we call emerging managers eventually called emerging managers and that that would be a good place to 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 put your money as an investor was completely foreign it was it was truly 
get into one of these big firms. And, and if you can't, then you shouldn't be in the asset class. Yeah. And, obviously and, and kind of a, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM mentality applied to venture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was pervasive amongst LPs, which made fundraising extraordinarily difficult. And, and obviously that that's, you know, sort of the wave, the second wave of change that I think has really been, it's just really shaken up the venture industry, right? And it's opened up the world to so many more interesting venture firms of all different types, right? I mean, High Alpha, which combines a studio with a venture, with the venture arm, like, you know, that stuff was not happening 15 years ago because the, the LP world was, was very close-minded. So that was wave two. And then I think wave three, which is what we're right in the kind of at the start of, and which I'm really excited about, which is, which relates a little bit to the book, although it's separate because it's, it's related to venture, which is this idea of more diversity and more interesting backgrounds for, for people joining in venture. And I think as we see from our funds practice, and we've invested at Foundry's invested in 42 venture funds. Um, and we, you know, so we're, we're looking at hundreds of venture funds as potential investments. There's just this like real push for diversity and really interesting funds that have started by people who don't look like us, Christian, right. Who are, are women, who are people of color. And so I think that's kind of the third wave of that, of the change in venture that, that, that I've experienced in the 20 years I've been in it. That's great. That is a perfect bridge to the question what was the catalyst for the book? Like, what at what point did you wake up, and did you and Elizabeth say, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's put our life on hold, or let's get a let's get a moonlighting job," as I think I've heard you describe it, and and write a book? I I have no firsthand knowledge of this, but I'm close to and have been around enough people that have done it to know that it is a enormous endeavor, and it's not something you do for the money. So, would you maybe unpack a little bit, like, what was the catalyst for the book? And then how you came into relationship with with Elizabeth and got started. Yeah. And I, there's some others listening, Scott, and others who probably <laughs> talk about their own experiences. It's, you're right. No one ever accidentally wrote a book. So let me let me tell you a little bit about Elizabeth, because she is an award-winning journalist. It's covered entrepreneurship really around the world. She and I met, she was in Jerusalem doing some work on entrepreneurship in Palestine. And someone said to her, Hey, you should meet this guy, Seth Levine. He's an American investor that does a lot of work in Palestine because I had this sort of side interest in the Middle East in general and in Palestinian entrepreneurship specifically. And I was working with a bunch of Palestinian entrepreneurs and I was an advisor to, at the time, the only venture fund that was working in Palestine. And so she called me up and we ended up kind of chatting, got along really well. And then over the subsequent, that was maybe five or six years ago, over the subsequent handful of years, we would just trade ideas around just interesting entrepreneurs that were working globally, but also in the United States, stories that weren't being told in the mainstream. And one day, I don't know, two and a half years ago, she was in Boulder and she came by the office and we had lunch. We were sitting down together and I, you know, we were talking about some of these stories and, and we were like, you know, we should write this up. Like we should write a book that, that describes these entrepreneurs. They're not the people that you read about in the mainstream press, but they're really compelling stories and they're really interesting. And so we were, and we were going to call it the faces of entrepreneurship. And it was going to be a very kind of lighthearted, almost like a coffee style, a coffee table style book where we'd highlight a bunch of, a bunch of new builders, right? I mean, as we now call them, but a, a bunch of people building businesses that were maybe not in the mainstream eye. And so, so we decided to do that. We started doing some research to write the, the, 
what they call the treatment, which is the proposal that you send right. to uh, first to your two agents to get it signed up as an agent with an agent, and then eventually to to publishers. And as we started doing that research, we we came across what we realized was a much much bigger story, which I'll describe in a second. But that's what really ballooned into this this slightly different book than we thought we were writing, which has turned out to be a, a real call to action for really for everyone, but in particular for the people who have power and money in our economy and society to uh, wake up to the reality of what's going on in entrepreneurship in America, which was really surprising and, and surprised a lot of our peers. I'll, I'll jump into that in a second, but it, that's kind of the, the genesis of the book. And so we, you know, we did that research for, it took about a year to do the research for the book. And during this time we were, you know, we wrote the treatment and we were, we signed an agent and we, we started shopping it around to publishers. And then just as we signed up with, with Wiley as our publisher, a COVID hit. And that was right as we were starting to write the book. And we realized that, you know, these, it became even more urgent, which is why we wrote the book in such a short period of time. We, we started writing it in probably May of 2020 and we finished it, finished the first well, the, we finished the draft and had it into copy edit by Halloween. And we had- oh, It's funny, as you read the book, you get a sense for, holy crap, this just happened. Like, they just, they just wrote this. Like, the book is so in the moment, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around it unless you read it. But it is, it is people throw the, world, the word timely around. <clears throat> in a very particular way, this is timely because you can see stories- that happened months ago, not years ago. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, we're and to do that, I mean, we were really, I mean, we were writing up until sort of the we finally hit go to to give it to the publisher. But I mean, typically, a book like this would be written over a course of maybe fourteen to eighteen months, and so writing, doing the writing portion over the course of like five or six months was a was a real lift. But but again, we felt like these were stories that needed to be told and we were so inspired by these new builders. It probably would be helpful, Christian, for me to kind of frame the key themes of the book here because I think that that's, I think that's a really good way to kind of kick off the discussion of the book itself because we learned some things that were surprising and troubling that are things that I think that I think more people need to understand, right? Which is why I've been so passionate about trying to get uh, as many people as possible to read the book. Obviously, we want people to read the work because I'm proud of it, but also because yeah. I think it's just such an important topic. But the key themes, as, as we outline in the book, are first, entrepreneurship in the United States is in a profound state of decline, which is a statement that is both factually true and something that people seem to have trouble getting their, their arms around. And I think that's because people in our world see entrepreneurship thriving, right? Venture had a bumper year. And seem you know appears to be on on its way to another bumper year. Venture is a tiny slice of the market, right? Only about one percent of companies take money from venture capitalists. Important companies, it's a lot of money. We could talk about how these two things relate, but but the reality is ninety nine percent of businesses don't. And and so I think sometimes you, in the same way that like the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S and P five hundred don't really reflect what goes on in the actual economy, that reflects mm-hmm. what goes on in this tiny portion at the very top of the of the economy. The, you know, the, the experience of venture-backed companies is not the experience of companies across the across the, the entrepreneurial landscape. So related to, to point number one is our belief that venture and, and high-tech startups, if you will, technology startups, have taken over 
this idea of entrepreneur in ways that we, that we think are dangerous, but totally pernicious, right? A hundred years ago, entrepreneur meant really anyone starting, starting a business, right? The roots are to endeavor, right? To undertake. And, you know, that could be a corner store. It could be a farrier or a blacksmith, a shopkeeper. Today, and we can talk about the history of this because it's actually kind of interesting, but today entrepreneur as a term tends to mean a high-tech entrepreneur, right? Someone who's starting a technology business, likely in, in Silicon Valley or about another tech hotbed. Related to that is this idea that the only businesses that are worthwhile are businesses that, that can scale, right? And that relates to this sort of tech narrative, if you will, which is just not the case, right? I mean, there's huge power in small businesses collectively for all sorts of different reasons that we can get into, but, but that's a dangerous narrative. Because well, Seth, it's, it's, and I don't want to catch up, but it is. I'm no. so glad you brought it up because it was a question I had written in the margins, and I will and I will confess to you that I I would say that I have propagated that idea that personally and recently that there is a distinction between small business person and entrepreneur, and that they describe two different things. Not now, I'll. I'll give myself the credit of not elevating one over the other because I, I understand, you know, intuitively. Of course, small business is 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 incredibly important, and and the value of business to society is not measured purely on a, a, a kind of multiple of revenue. But do you use the term small business person and entrepreneur synonymously? We do, right? And part of what we argue for in the book is this idea that if you, if entrepreneur becomes just tech entrepreneur and everyone else is sort of something else, that you're, you're separate and unequal, right? That, 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 and I think part of what has been so rewarding about the book, I mean, we, we wrote the book for a few different people to read, right? Very much so for people who are on this webinar, right? In our universe, our peers in venture and, and in, in tech. So that they understand sort of what's going on in the broader world and think about maybe ways that they can help foster entrepreneurship more broadly. But we also wrote it for the new builders, right? We, we call the action, give them some agency. And one of the things that we have heard that's been so rewarding is from new builders who say to us things like, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but you know what? You're right. And there's a little bit more like head held higher and a bit more swagger. You know, there's power in labels, right? And there's power in, in the new builder label. They've, they've really, a number of new builders have reached out to us to say that they they really love the label, right? Like they, they love the idea like, yeah, I'm a builder. I'm a new builder, right? And I think that that's really important. Now, not all people starting businesses fit this description that I'm about to describe, but the new prototype of the new builder describes a much broader and more diverse set of people that are starting businesses today, which again, people don't realize because tech is so dominated by, by white males. But the truth is that the fastest growing segments of people starting businesses are women and people of color, specific and immigrants, right? As they've always been, immigrants tend to start businesses at roughly twice the rate of, of people born in the U.S., but specifically black women are the fastest growing uh, segment of new entrepreneurs of new business owners in the United States. Hmm. But yet the systems of capital are still controlled by, by people that look like us, right? And so we there's this there, there is this huge disconnect, and we talk a lot about this in the book, 
about the importance of capital, but also the disconnect between the people starting businesses and the and and the systems of capital to fund those businesses. And the result is, I describe one percent of businesses that take money from venture capital. Only about seventeen percent of businesses get funded by banks, yeah. right? So eighty three percent of businesses are somewhere in the middle. Eighty two percent of businesses are somewhere in the middle. These are the, these are data from Kaufman. And that's a challenge, right? Especially as the people starting businesses have become more diverse because of you know the history of our our country is such that black families have one tenth the wealth of white families, Hispanic families have one seventh the wealth of white families. By the way, that's true at every income level, and that's true of every educational level too. So this is not just people of color maybe haven't you know, advanced as much in their education and therefore they are, they have less wealth. That's not true at all. They, we just have a system that has held people down. I actually just finished reading a book called the the black tax that kind of goes through this and in, in very uncomfortable for, for me, but I think worthwhile listening to detail. And, and that's just, you know, that prevents a, a bunch of businesses from getting started. One of the favorite, my favorite studies that we actually looked at in the book and the book is kind of a mix of like, some studies and here's some data and research and let's talk about like, here's, here's a new builder and here's his or her story. And so we tried to kind of balance the two out, but there's actually a study that like showed more access to capital <laughs> equals more successful businesses, but normalized for, for other factors. Right. So is, that the, is that the number one? I mean, I, I understand it's complex and there's a lot of variables that are misaligned and maladapted to what needs to be true moving forward is access to capital. I won't make you say number one, but is it, it's, it's one of the most pressing disconnects. I'll say it's number one. Okay. If we're going to do anything to, to fix this, this gap we're having now, right. They, by, by various estimates, there are somewhere between one and 2 million businesses that don't exist in the United States today that should, based on sort of historical trajectory hmm. of business starts versus businesses closing. But, you know, we're below that, significantly below that baseline. In fact, in some years, it's been negative. We've actually lost more businesses than, than that have been started. Hmm. So there are millions of businesses that don't exist because that should exist. And the primary culprit is capital and lack of access to capital. Could, could I don't want to, I know you're still rolling, but there's a question I had that kind of maps to what you're sharing. I'm going to sneak it in there. So don't lose, kind of don't lose your place. But in, in the latter part of your chapter 16 of your book, you mention that in order to recognize the new builders as Americans, we first need to recognize ourselves. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that to this group? Yeah. That's my favorite chapter of the book because it kind of, you know, we got well, to the It's a end. beautiful turn of phrase. So I know it's freighted with meaning, but but I'd, I'd love I'd love a little for you to expound on it a little bit. I, you know, I feel very connected to the history of entrepreneurship in the United States. I already felt connected to it just because of the work that I've done and in my own family's history of, of being entrepreneurial. And I think most people in the United States have that similar history, in part because if you go back 100 or 200 years, most people were entrepreneurs, right? There weren't as many big businesses for people to work for. So, and, and, and similarly, most people are, belong to families who came over at some point, right? And in my case, my great-grandparents didn't speak English, right? My, grand, my grandfather's first language wasn't English either. 
And so I don't feel that far away from, and I think most people don't feel that far away from these sort of entrepreneurial roots. And that's what we meant by that phrase, right? We talk Mm. in that chapter, we talk about seeing, recognizing and valuing new builders. And and this sort of, I have a general theme in the world, and maybe it's just because my kids are teenagers now. And so I, I talk to them about, about this concept a lot, which is like kindness. Like, like it's kind of the most important thing to my wife and to me is to instill this notion of kindness. And I feel like as a society, we could use that. And But new builders in particular could use that, right? And when you walk into a shop on Main Street, the person who's behind the counter very well might be the owner of the business. That means they're probably the accountant for the business. They're also the inventory manager, right? And merchandiser. And there's, you know, there's a lot going on, right? And it's challenging to be a small business owner, especially now, right? Through COVID in particular. And so that's what we meant, Christian, by that, by that concept. And we talk in chapter 16, it's it's not a policy book, but chapter 16 does lay out some ideas that we had having spent so much time with new builders, having spent so much time in the research just thinking about what are things that we could do as a society and what could we do as individuals to take action. And, and one of the things that I would, I would point out, I, I think this will resonate with this group quite well, but the power of individual action is, is really, I think, compelling, right? And, and we talk about stories of like one from Lancaster, one from Staunton, Virginia, of individuals who kind of took it upon themselves to, to lead something that became meaningful change in their community and in their and specifically in their entrepreneurial community. And and I think that that there is a there's a power to that, right? And there's a power to to saying, hey, I I see something that I isn't the way that I want it to be. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some part, even if it's a small part, in changing that. And that that goes way beyond just shopping local and buying, buying from businesses that are owned by people of color. I mean, of course, that's worth doing, but the book is very careful not to create a narrative that's like big is bad and small is good. And no one should ever shop from Amazon. Like that's, that's totally, I shop from Amazon all the time. It's super convenient. Right? Like we all do. That's not what I'm talking about. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's a little bit more nuanced and, and, but also keeping our kind of our lives personally, as well as our society in a bit more balance. Yeah. Seth, I, I wonder without, without maybe going into too much detail, because I do want people to, to navigate over to the website, Catherine dropped into the chat and buy this book. But would you mind maybe sharing a couple of stories that are highlighted, some particular to some builders that are highlighted uh, in the book? Are there any that, sure, they, they're all your, your kids in, 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 in one way, so you don't think any of them are ugly, but are there any stories in particular that you think are remarkably inspiring or might whet people's appetite to dig in deeper into the book itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It's sort of, it is sort of like your kids. You don't, you don't want to pick your favorite, but of course at any given moment, and you have more kids than I do, but, but, but you have, you know, at any given moment you have a favorite, right? So no, I'm joking, of course, but well, I, and, and I, I must say, by the way, Catherine just reminded me that we, we did give away 75 of those books to people that are, that are on. So this is a awesome. reminder to register for these things quickly if you want the free stuff, all right? So the balance of you who didn't want the first 75 to sign up, I would encourage you to, to, to pick this up. Yeah, if you did, and if you did get a free one and you enjoyed it, like buy one for a friend, of course. Yeah, exactly, there you go. You got um, no, I really, I, we're just, I want more, as many people as possible to read it because I think it's so important. Let me tell the story of Dinaris Mazzara because she is, we start the book out with her. She's incredibly compelling. She's a wonderful, wonderful new builder. 
And it's it's just an example of grit and determination that is is just sort of off the charts. Daenerys is a Dominican Im- immigrant to the U.S. And she uh, was living in Lawrence, lives still in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was a very rough, rough town outside of Boston. The, the Boston Magazine at one point called it the city of the damned. High unemployment, high crime. It, it's a really kind of challenged place. And she and her husband worked in the factories that were around Lawrence, Mass. And at one point, her husband, this is in sort of 2008, her husband lost his job. And Daenerys was lying on the sofa just trying to figure out like how she was going to actually make ends meet when her mom dropped by and gave her $37 in food stamps and said, hey, go buy some food for your family. Daenerys is a religious woman, and at that point, she she had what she believes was a religious calling, right? She heard God speak to her and say, go make flan, which is funny because she didn't know how to make flan, which is this like custard-style dessert. So she went to the store, and I'm sure not what her mother had in mind with the $37, and bought ingredients to make flan. She came back home, burned the first batch, ended up making... making the second batch, it turned out, she brought them to her work at Sam. She worked at a Samsung factory and she sold them for five or six bucks at the, you know, for a piece in the break room. And three or four weeks later, she had $500 and realized that she kind of had a business on her hands. And so Mm -hmm. she started, she scaled that up a little bit and started doing that. Eventually started making cakes. All of this was done out of her home, (laughs) out of her apartment, really. And eventually she hooked up with an organization that we also talk about in the book called Entrepreneurship for All, E for All. Uh, and they helped her change her pricing. She was undercharging for cakes. I helped her move out of her, her apartment, which of course was not particularly legal in terms of a place to be, uh, be baking. But and then, so they helped her do that. And then now she's the owner. The story is more complicated than that when we talk about it in the book, but but now she's the owner of Sweet Grace Heavenly Cakes and then has a storefront in uh, downtown Lawrence. She employs 16 people. She's a community leader. She now is a mentor back to E for All and E para Todos, which is the Spanish version of that. And it's just, I mean, she's really been transformed into this community leader. And it, it just, her story is so powerful, both because it's so atypical in the sense that, you know, most people don't start a business with $37 of any kind, particularly $37 in food stamps, but, but in some ways so typical, right? I mean, she's just, she has had the grit and, and determination to, to see it through. And so she, she created something out of nothing and now is this community leader and is, you know, and is proudly so, and it's, it's just a really compelling example of the power of it's a cool It's an awesome story. And I think, I'm dying to go because there's a part of the book where you all talk about the fact that her product is so coveted that they collect the crumbs from the cake making process, put them in cups and people line up around the block to buy cups of crumbs of her cake, which, which sounds pretty remarkable. Pretty, pretty amazing. Absolutely. And by the way, I should mention there in the book, we have a photo insert. We, we <laughs> pushed hard with the uh, publisher to get it because it's not inexpensive to do that. There's some wonderful pictures of Daenerys, of her husband in the bakery. He now works works with her in the bakery. 
and then there's some pictures of the cake and flan. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's a little freebie. You still need to buy the book, but there's a little teaser. There you go. I love that. That's awesome. And so we, you know, we did that because we wanted people to have kind of a little bit of a flavor for these new builders. We wanted to make them real and, and we wanted it to be personal. And so that's why we, we put these pictures in. And so I, you know, it's just a, it's just an incredibly compelling story. But by the way, she's one of maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 new builders that we highlight in the book. And we probably met, I don't know, t- twice that many that we spent time with and interviewed during the writing process. I mean, they're just incredibly compelling people. We're big, Ms. Elizabeth and I are big fans of the new builders um, because they are just such optimistic, compelling people. It's inspiring. Yeah. I, and again, your, your heart for entrepreneurship kind of in general, but telling the story, these stories, which all these ideas and heart changes are connected to storytelling. If you can't nail that, if you can't do an excellent job of that, it's, 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 you're going to be beating your head against the wall. And so that's why just the fact that you and Elizabeth set out to document this, the amount of work that went into finding these new builders and telling their stories authentically is is pretty remarkable. I, I wonder if we could, I want to shift gears and, and maybe hit with two more quick questions and then we'll open it up to Q&A. And, and I think we've got quite a few questions that have come through, which is great. You said it tra- supporting the new builders transcends just shopping local or being intentional about shopping at black and brown owned and women owned businesses, although you said that's important. What, what else would you recommend or, or would you maybe challenge us to think about that's actionable, right? I mean, I love the idea of being kind. That, that, that should be a core part of everybody's operating system. If you had to click in, into maybe one more level of specificity, in addition to kind of supporting with your dollars, what, what else do you recommend or would you challenge us to think about as a group? Yeah, well, there are other ways to support with dollars as well, right? Because there are, we've, we've opened up the world to crowdfunding and, and other forms of direct investment to small businesses. And I think that's a great way for people to get involved. There are a bunch of platforms. We talk about MainVest in the, in the book, but there's a handful of others where you can just invest in downtown businesses, right? So that's thing one. Thing two is if you have expertise, there are ways to get involved through chambers of commerce, through, through programs like E4All, to be a mentor, not just for tech businesses, right? Tech businesses need mentorship, but, but also other types of businesses do as well. And we talk about this huge gap, not just in capital, but also in terms of advice and help. And so the chance to actually um, engage with a, a new builder and help them with their business, given your expertise, can be hugely impactful. The next thing you can do is for those of us that have relationships with with people with with the purse strings in, in government, there are a number of things that government can and should do to both ease regulation on small banks. There's this crisis in the banking system right now. We, we've lost well, 20 years ago there were 14,000 banks. Today there are fewer than 5,000 banks. So we've lost 9,000 banks. Almost all that consolidation has happened at the lower end, the smaller end of the banking system. We need to bolster community banks by easing regulation and then. And, and then investing in them. If, if you're so inclined, you could also put your money into a com- community bank or some of your money into a community bank. That the the there's about a hundred x multiplier effect on money that goes into a bank because the money gets loaned out. That money goes back into a bank account at some point. That money gets loaned out, and it sort of keeps on going as this sort of virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, there are relatively few black-owned banks, and it's not. I'm not 
by any way suggesting that that people of color should only be getting loans from black owned banks. In fact, there's a whole other thing we need to do to make the banking sector uh, less less biased. But the truth is that that black owned banks do and have historically done a better job of loaning to people of color, you can put your money to or some amount of money into a black owned bank, right? And I mean, that's a savings account. Like if you if you need to park money somewhere and you have some excess excess capital, that's a great way without really even having to do anything. You just literally sit, stick in the bank that allows that money to be put to use in, in positive ways. So those are just a couple of things. And, you know, I'm working on a couple of legislative items that I'm hoping will increase funding to the community finance development network, the CDFI network, things like that, I think are really important. But but for in terms of like direct actionable items that that, that people can do on this, you know, they're listening in. I, the number one thing other than directly fund a new builder business would be give some time, right? They, they okay. really, these businesses need mentorship and they need help. And a lot of the stories that we tell in the new, in the, in the book describe people changing their business direct t- trajectory by getting that help. Okay, that's good. That's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna end by zooming all the way back to venture for a minute. I was coincidentally, I, I saw this quote this morning, kind of wound up in my inbox from the former CEO of PepsiCo, Indra Nui, who's one one of the few CEOs that goes just by first name. That's that's how remarkable she is. But her quote was, "I look at the statistics." 70% of high school valedictorians are women. More than 50% of college graduates are women. And then I find that only 2% of venture capital is going to women. Talk about emerging markets. One of the biggest emerging market opportunities we have in the U.S. is women. So this question is specific to women because those are the kind of numbers I shared. The VCs, at least on paper, seem to be motivated by generating returns for their LPs, right? Certainly, they're packed full of unconscious bias and tacit motivations and all sorts of other things that are are hard to measure empirically. But that number is true, right? And what really struck me was 70% of high school valedictorians are women. 2% receive venture capital. That delta is really fascinating and probably correlated somehow my question is, is it's two parts. So what do we do, which I know you've thought about, but even, even more importantly or vexing for me is why? If, if you have these managers who are singularly focused on or, or predominantly focused on generating returns, big returns for their investors, what is the psychology or the structural impediments that have held the industry back in such a, in such a profound and significant way. Yeah, it's such a nuanced and layered challenge. Let me make a couple of statements. One one of which is that I think that framing it in terms of venture in some respects does it a disservice because I think one of the challenges is hmm. a challenge with the venture model, right? Which is that we, you know, we're 66% of investments fail to return capital, right? 0.1% of investments return, return 10 times or, or more. We're obsessed with unicorns in our world because that's what drives these outsized returns because most, most investments fail. And I think that as a model for economic development has real challenges, right? It's not a great model for broad-based economic development. It's a great model for those companies that work out in their employees and for the, the 
uh, individuals that back them or funds that back them. But I think there's some tweaking that needs to be done. And I think we're starting to do a little bit with the venture capital model. And I think at least part of the reason, and I, we talk about instead of unicorns, like broadly speaking, we should create camels, right? As a, as a country, we should be creating more camels, right? Not, not mythical for starters, but more work may, maybe less sexy, but uh, much more likely to be successful. And so, I, you know, I do... I do feel like there's a, a commentary to be made about the overall venture model that I think is important to think about. I, I also, my observation as I've pushed hard over the last, in particular, two to three years to help Foundry be more diversified in our own fund investing in particular, is that I feel like the checklists are wrong, right? I mean, I feel like, that it, and I'm not blaming LPs, but I feel like we sometimes are, are, there's so much of a propensity to say, where did, who does this person know in my network, right? Or where, what boxes do I check about pedigree and where they went to school and things like that? And I think that that creates this sort of insularity, which I think is actually detrimental to returns. But, you know, back to this idea of like, you know, you don't get fired for IBM. That just, it's very slow moving in the LP world in particular to think more broadly and say, hey, how do we expose ourselves to different types of risk and different types of upside by investing in a more diverse set of people? I think that's starting to happen. And that same thing, I think, is also failing to happen at the fund level as well. So I, I think these are questions that we should be asking ourselves and pushing ourselves on. And I hope that things are starting to change, to open up. Certainly there are far more women in the boardroom than there were yeah. five years ago. There's, I'm sure, I, I don't know how you guys are seeing in your portfolio, but I, we should count it. But I, I'm sure we've brought on probably 50 new board members over the last 18 months, uh, essentially mm -hmm. all of whom are from some diverse background, person of color or, or, or female. That's a good place to start. I think I think diversifying the elect the executive ranks. I think that's a really good place to start. And then obviously diversifying funding and funding more women and more people of color. Again, I, I mean my belief is that will lead to outsized returns. So I think it's not just a good good thing for the world. I think it's good for investment returns as well. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.